And then we're going to be in John chapter 10, uh, verse 22, uh, John 10, 22 through the end of the chapter. And let's go to the Lord in, in prayer this morning. Father, we do thank you for your faithfulness and your mercy and your consistency, your, your presence in our lives. And Lord, we do ask that you would work in the lives of our teens, our college students, through the power of your spirit here in our church and here in our community, that you would really bless this retreat that they're going to have a week from now, that you would touch lives, change lives. And Lord, as we spend some time in your word this morning, that you would speak to us, that we would be in a place of confidence that we're in your hand, that we're in your grip. So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great blessings in my life has been my dad. Uh, I've just got a great relationship uh, with my dad and his investment uh, in my life. And even as a, a child and a teen and, and now as an adult, uh, his words have been comforting to me. His presence in my life has been comforting to me. His, his hand in my life has been a comfort to me. To be able to talk with him through situations, just even talking through uh, daily life. And I was reflecting, looking at some uh, journal entries from two years ago when he was in the hospital. He had colon cancer, complications with the colon cancer, ended up in ICU, and thankfully he, he got through it. But there was uh, three or four days there where the doctors were saying, you know, you may lose him. And I was looking at his hands as he was laying there in ICU, and I was reminded of all of the memories that I have uh, with my dad, and just how much I treasure him and, and treasure his hands. And I, I think some of you can probably relate when you think of the hand of a parent. You know, this is, this is the hand that cared for you, the hand that guided you, the hand that has been there for you. This morning, we're going to be looking at God's hand. We're going to be looking at the comfort that we have of the fact that we're in Christ's hand, that we're in the Father's hand, that we're in his grip. And I pray this morning that you are comforted, that you're comforted by that truth and that reality that you're in God's grip. So verse 22, now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. John gives to us some chronological markers of the life of Jesus. The last one was that Jesus came to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. Now time has moved on, and it's the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Tabernacles is in October. The Feast of Dedication is in December. What is the Feast of Dedication? It is when the nation of Israel would celebrate Hanukkah, and they still do this to this day. The Feast of Dedication is not instituted in the law, but came out of a Maccabean period. We find the book of Malachi ending, and there's a period in nations, Israel's history where Antiochus Epiphany comes and takes control of the temple, defiles the temple, would do things like uh, take pork and force the priest to eat pork, defiled the altar, even brought in prostitution into the temple. And Judas Maccabees does the revolution against Antiochus Epiphanes, and God delivers, and they're able to take control of the temple again, and they celebrate that with the Feast of uh, Dedication. So when we ended in chapter 10, it was still prior. It was still on that Feast of Tabernacles, and there's some time between verse 21 and between verse uh, 22, and that's marked for us that Jesus is coming to the Feast of Dedication, and now he's walking in the temple. 
in Solomon's porch uh, specifically. This was a patio, a portico on the east side of the temple. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. This seems like a great question. This seems like the kind of question that you wait for where someone's like, man, tell me who Jesus is. Are you the Christ? If you're the Messiah, would you just tell us plainly? But it's not a genuine question. They're really desiring to entrap Jesus in his words. If he claims to be the Messiah in their minds, that would be blasphemy and they would have more ammunition for the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Jesus says, I've already told you, and you do not believe me. If you go back and you look at what we've already studied in the Gospel of John, Jesus has made it very clear that he's God. With these I am statements that he declared, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd. He has declared himself to be the Messiah. They don't believe, but what Jesus draws the attention to is his works. The works that I've done in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Healing the sick, opening the eyes of the blind, healing the deaf, raising the dead, feeding the 5,000 with five loaves and, and two fish. He says, look at my works if you're wondering if I'm the Messiah. The greatest work of Christ is his crucifixion and resurrection. Maybe you're examining, do I believe in Christ? Who is Jesus? Is is he God? Look at his works and specifically look at his resurrection. In verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. In comedy, if you're watching someone do comedy, they have the callback line kind of throughout their comedic act. And and so here's the joke, and then they go on talking, and then they bring you back to it. Sometimes in teaching, you have the the callback where you're reminding people. Jesus is reminding this group of a conversation that he had had two and a half months or so prior, what we studied last week of Jesus being the shepherd and us being the sheep. This beautiful relationship that Jesus has with his children. He says to this particular group, look, you're not my sheep because you don't hear my voice. You're you're not responding to my voice because my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So we're encouraged that Jesus is our shepherd, that we do hear his, his voice. In verse 28, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Jesus now begins to talk about what are the benefits of being in his flock that he grants to us eternal life. And we're comforted in this reality that God has given to us eternal life as believers. This life is never going to make sense if we don't factor in eternal life. A lot of times we tend to think in the temporal that it's all about the here and now. And Jesus told us, he said, don't let your hearts be troubled because I go to prepare a place for you. If you want a heart that's not burdened, a heart that's comforted, a heart that can rest at ease, you have to look at heaven. You have to look at eternal life. Jesus said, didn't say, don't let your hearts not be troubled because of this life. He says, no, I've, I've gone to prepare a place for you. Jesus gives us a promise. In this life, 
you will have tribulation. You will get your can kicked. Things are not going to work out the way that you expected them to. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, and he says, set your mind on things above. We're to be thinking about heaven, rejoicing in heaven, realizing this is where things are going to be made right. Things aren't going to be made right in this life, but they're going to be made right in eternal life. If you know Christ is your Savior, you have a reservation in heaven. And what is heaven going to be like? We know there's going to be no more pain. There's going to be no more sorrow. No more suffering. No more disease. No more doctor appointments. That's going to be nice, isn't it? Probably for the doctor and the patient. It's got to be hard on on doctors as they see all the suffering and deal with all of the suffering. We're going to have glorified bodies. Jesus is going to wipe away all of our tears. Every relationship with believers is going to be glorified and restored. I was talking with a friend uh, this week and he brought this to mind in a difficult relationship that he's facing and saying, I know that in eternity, this relationship is going to be glorified. Imagine that. Unfortunately, sometimes we do get sideways with believers and hopefully there can be resurrection. There can be reconciliation, but sometimes that doesn't take place. Have you ever ran into an old friend that's a believer and it's just kind of awkward and you're like, that's so painful. Why does it have to be awkward? Why does it have to be weird like that? There's going to be none of that in heaven. There's not going to be like, oh, I can't believe you're here, right? <laughs> and you, sure, you sure get on my nerves. <laughs> it's going to be glorified. We're going to have glorified relationships with one another, It's going to be incredible. We're going to behold God and see God, and we can only imagine what that's going to be like and experience worship to the fullest. Unfortunately, it seems like Satan's kind of gotten this view that hell's going to be this place that you want to go to because people are going to party there, but heaven's really boring. Heaven's chubby angels with harps. Who wants to do chubby angels with harps forever, right? No, everything good in this life is just a little bit of a foreshadowing. It's just a taste of how wonderful heaven's going to be. We look at creation. Pike's Peak was beautiful this week with the the fresh snow. It's just a little bit of what what heaven's going to be like. When we experience worship in the presence of God and we go, oh, this is so good to worship the Lord. That's just a little foreshadowing of what it's going to be like to see God and to worship him. The Bible tells us that We're going to be joint heirs with Christ, and we get to rule and reign with Christ. God is going to have things for us to do, assignments that he is going to to give to us. The joy, the peace, the certainty, the hope in our lives is that we have eternal life, that we're looking forward to the joy of heaven. And I think as we put our focus there, then it causes us to also have a compassion and heart for the lost for those that don't know Christ as their savior can you imagine thinking that it's all about this life and rejecting Christ all along and finding yourself in eternal judgment so this is the best that it ever gets then you go to hell for all of eternity so us looking at heaven also stirs a a heart for those that don't know Christ we want to take as many with us as possible 
But notice Jesus says, I will give them eternal life and they shall never perish. From God's perspective, you don't perish. Yes, you do die. This physical body passes away, but he sees death as a graduation. The Psalms tell us that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. The the last breath here on earth is our first breath in heaven. As we look at the resurrection of Christ at Easter, the sting of death has been taken away. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he conquered death. He punched death in the face to where we don't have to fear death any longer because we're never going to perish. We get to graduate. We get to go home to be with the Lord. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. So God has granted to us eternal life, but also we're comforted that we're in his grip. There's this present security of knowing I'm in the hand of Christ, but not only the hand of Christ, but the hand of the Father, and I'm held in that place of security. We enjoy going for walks as a family. We kind of always have. And when our kids were little and you're walking with them and maybe you're getting onto a a busy street or you're walking in a parking lot, you grab your your kids' hands and they think that they're holding your hand. A two or three-year-old feels like I'm holding dad's hand. I'm I'm holding mom's hand. But what are you doing as a parent? You're like, I've got you and you're not getting out of this handhold. Because this is a dangerous spot, and I don't want you running off and, and getting hit in traffic. Just recently, in February, we were in Israel, had the opportunity to take a couple of our children with us, and our nine-year-old daughter and our 12-year-old daughter. And in the old town of Jerusalem, the old city, it's very congested. There's, there's a lot of people. Uh, it's not the safest place uh, in the world. And my daughter, Eileen, I had her hand... And I was not going to let go, right? She was in my grip. I know Jesus got lost in Jerusalem, but I don't want to lose any of my kids in, in Jerusalem. And many times we feel like, I've got God's hand. I'm holding on to God. I'm believing. I'm trusting in God. And that's good. But much more so, Jesus says, I've got you. I've got you. I'm holding on to you. And in fact, not just me, but my father as well. The father is holding on to you. So this hand that holds us, what, what is it like? Well, it's the hand of the creator, the, the hand that spoke all things into existence. In Isaiah 40, verse 12, it says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with, with a span. It's the hand of the creator, but it's also the hand of the savior, God in human flesh. When we examine the hand of Christ in his earthly life, it was a strong hand, wasn't it? Jesus worked as a carpenter and didn't have the benefit of Makita or Black & Decker, any power tools, worked hard with his hands. When Peter was walking on water and lost sight of Jesus and began to sink, we see Jesus pulling him out with one hand. He did the one-arm curl, right? Jesus probably made CrossFitters look weak. He's strong. The strong hand of of our Savior, but also the hand of Jesus was tender. Where the kids felt comfortable coming to Jesus and sitting in in his lap. 
the kind touch of Christ as he would heal the blind and heal the deaf. So the hand of our Savior is strong, but the hand of our Savior is also kind. But the hand of Jesus was also miraculous as he took bread and broke it, five loaves and two fish, and fed the multitudes, fed the the 5,000 plus. But then this hand went to the cross for us and was crucified and took the nails into his hands. And the doubter, Thomas, examined the wounds of Christ after Christ rose from the dead. And that's the greatest comfort to us because we don't always feel God's hand upon our lives. This isn't based, this promise that Jesus gives to us, it's not based on our emotions, our feelings, or our perception. It's based on the promise of God. So as we're going through our lives, whether we feel it or we don't, we can rest that we're in the hand of God, and this hand that is holding us is the hand that died for us. So we go, Lord, I don't understand this circumstance. I don't understand this pain. I don't understand this this difficulty. I don't necessarily feel you right now in my life, but I know your promise is that I'm in your hand and that nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Turn with me to Romans 8. Let's read Romans 8, verses 31 through 39, because Paul really expresses the same truth of the love of God and us being in the love of God. This is Romans 8, verse 31. Paul writes, What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things. If God's for you, who can really be against you? And how has God proven that he has for, is for you? Well, he didn't spare his own son. He gave to you what is most valuable to him, his only begotten son. So then we can trust that with Christ, he's also going to freely give us all things. Now, this doesn't mean that, that God's going to give us everything that we want but he's going to freely give everything that is to his glory and is to our benefit. Really for our good and for his glory. And this confidence that we see because he gave us his son. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died. And furthermore is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So how do we know that we're not going to be condemned? Because Jesus is the one who has that position of judgment and he's standing as our advocate. And here Jesus is in this position of making intercession for us. That's a great comfort, isn't it? You're getting prayed for by Christ today. He ever lives to intercede on our behalf before the Father. Verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What can separate you from God's love? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Can any of those things separate you from God's love? Separate you from God's hand? Absolutely not. So we're beginning to understand that being in God's hand doesn't mean the absence of pain. But it does mean that as we go through pain, that that pain cannot remove us from God's hand. Amen? 
All of these things cannot move us from God's love, from, from God's hand. For your sake we're killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. So Paul's saying, look, we're going to go through persecution. We're going to go through hard times, even to the point of possibly being martyred. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Because he loves us, we're not just conquerors, we're, we're more than conquerors. And here to me, I think, is the application for us this morning. Paul says, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, I've done the math. I've taken the time to think about it, and I'm all in. I'm persuaded. I know that nothing is going to separate me from the love of God and nothing is going to separate us from the love of God. The question is, are you convinced? The question is, am I convinced? Can I say I am fully persuaded because of who God is, because of how faithful his hands are? The hands of my Savior, the hands of my Creator, the hands of my Father, he's got me. And nothing's going to separate me. Nothing's going to move me from the love of God. Great comfort of knowing that we're in his grip. Let's go back to John 10 and verse 30. I and my Father are one. Jesus says, as we've got a hold of you, I and my Father are one. What Jesus is not saying is that he and the Father are the same person, but yet, in this mystery of the Trinity, there's distinct persons, but yet one. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yesterday, we took Wyatt to the dollar store. He's six, and the dollar store is one of his favorite places. It's like the coolest place on the planet, and he'd done a few chores and had a few bucks in, in his wallet, and all day, he's like, can we go to the dollar store? Can we go to the dollar store? So we get to the dollar store in the afternoon, and these were his four purchases. Of course, he bought a toy pistol, got the, that does make noise, by the way, and then he gets a, a roll of scotch tape, he found a laser pointer that also has a flashlight, could, could be trouble, and then a flashlight, so those were the, that's quite a bit for four dollars, right, so with tax, it's four dollars and 32 cents, and he puts it all out there, and gets home, and about a, a, an hour later, he comes up to me, he goes, Dad, check this out. And he's got his pistol with the laser on the side and the taped to it. So he can point the pistol and get the laser sight all in there. But the laser's also got the flashlight. So he's got three in one. He's got the pistol, he's got the laser, and he's got the flashlight. And I was reading over my notes and I'm like, that's the Trinity right there. You got the three distinct persons... You know, the Father is the gun, the whole, Jesus is the laser, and the Holy Spirit's the light, distinct, but yet, but yet one. And Jesus says, I and the Father are one. So I got a kick out of that. Verse 31, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. So many times they've tried to kill Christ. And this isn't this judicial process of this going before the Sanhedrin. This is just pure anger of getting stones, and we want to kill you right now. Charles Spurgeon says this, If you can't destroy 
the reasoning, you may perhaps destroy the reasoner. So they can't destroy Jesus' reasoning, so they're like, we're just going to destroy the the reasoner. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? I'm so impressed with the self-control of Christ. Here they are trying to kill him, and he's calm and is able to respond with truth and logic. And it's like, okay, so for what good work are you trying to stone me? Was it healing the blind man? Was it casting out the demons? Was it feeding the 5,000? The Jews answered him saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy and because you being a man make yourself God. They got the point. When Jesus said, the Father and I are one, they realized that Jesus is claiming to be God. And they considered that to be blasphemy and that's why they wanted to kill Christ. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? Now Christ comes back at them with the word of God. And he quotes Psalms 82, where this section of scripture where God refers to the judges of Israel as being gods. Now, it's not saying that they were deity, but it emphasizes the authority that were given to judges, that they were able to decide life and death, that they were able to implement capital punishment. Even in our country, I hope you've realized what's the most powerful positions in our land. It's not our president. It's our judges. The judges really establish the laws uh, for our country, and it's this that's being emphasized in what was communicated in Psalms 82. But Jesus brings this up for a point. He says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. So if the word of God recognizes that judges have power, how much more so should you recognize my authority? The Father sent me. The Father set me apart. I'm the Son of God. I'm God. So if you're going to recognize these judges, how much more so should you recognize me? Also in verse 35, Jesus says, the scripture cannot be broken. A very controversial subject, even among believers, unfortunately, is the inherency of scripture. Can you trust the word of God, Genesis to Revelation? Well, Jesus believed in the inherency of scripture. Here he's going back to the Old Testament, and he's talking about Psalms 82, and what does he say? The scripture cannot be be broken. So if Jesus believes in the inherency of scripture, it's enough for me. One that is also contested is the story of Jonah. Jonah being swallowed by a great fish, being in the belly of the fish for three days. A lot of people go, well, you know, I believe in Jesus. I I believe in the resurrection. I'm saved. I just can't believe the whole Jonah deal. And to me, that doesn't make sense. You said you believe in the resurrection, but you don't believe that God can send a great fish and keep somebody alive. But the key is Jesus believed this story with Jonah. Jesus referred to the story of Jonah and even pulled it back to his resurrection. Like Jonah, I'll be buried for three days. Jonah was in the belly of the well. I'm going to be in the earth and be raised up after three days. So if you don't believe in the story of Jonah, I guess you're smarter than Jesus, right? And so for us, it always brings us to this place. It's like, man, if, if Jesus believes in the inherency of Scripture, if Jesus believes in the validity of the story of Jonah, how much more so uh, do I? Verse 37, 
if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. So he's saying, if my works don't line up with who the Father is, then don't believe in me. But if I do, though you do not believe, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. It's so important to remember who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to those that want to kill him. And yet he still loves them and he wants them to believe and he wants them to be saved. He's saying, guys, I know you don't believe, but would you please take a look at my works once again? And I think we see the heart of God there. That God doesn't want any to perish. And maybe for some reason you've said no to Christ and no to Christ and even are hostile towards Christ. His heart is for you and he wants you to be his child. Verse 39, therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hands. How did he escape? We don't know. But it shows that Christ is the one who is in control. That Christ will lay down his life, that no one is taking his life from him. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first. And there he stayed. So he leads, leaves Jerusalem. We're getting closer to his crucifixion, probably about three months from his, his crucifixion, and he returns to the wilderness east of Jericho, where John the Baptist was baptizing, where Jesus was originally baptized and began his public ministry. Then many people came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. John is a prophet. And it would have been unusual for John to do no miracle, especially because all they had known were the prophets in the Old Testament. And the prophets in the Old Testament, generally God used them to work miracles. But here is John the Baptist, and no miracle was worked through his life. No healing, no casting out demons, none of those things. And the people noticed that. They go, we've noticed that there was no miracle that was done through John the Baptist, but everything that he spoke about Jesus was true. And the result in verse 42 is Christ returns to this region. Many believed because of the testimony of John. Like John was telling us about Jesus and he was telling us the truth. Everything he told about Jesus is true. Jesus said that of all born of women, there was none greater than John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is a model for us to follow in our lives and a lot of times, I think we desire to see God use our lives for the miraculous. How cool would it be to pray for somebody and see them be healed, right? How cool would it be to, to experience all of those, those types of things? And if the Lord wants to do that for his glory, he's able to. But I suggest to you that we get to witness the greatest miracle of all, and that is to share Christ with someone and see someone believe in Christ, see God save them, be born again, go from darkness to light, be the child of God. That's the greatest miracle that could ever take place. So whether God works miracles through our lives or not, that's up to him. But we all can speak of Jesus and speak things that are accurate about who he is. So be an expert in Jesus. Be an expert in who he is. Be an expert in what he claims and the message for salvation and his love for people. So there's three ways that we're comforted this morning. And the first is we're comforted in knowing we have eternal life. When was the last time you thought about heaven? You thought about how good heaven is, that you're headed towards heaven. 
every day you get closer to your final destination. God could come and rapture the church and take us all at one time. I would love that. What if this is the year that God raptures the church? Be incredible. But if the rapture doesn't happen, we are getting closer to our own departure when we're going to go home to be with the Lord. If you get depressed kind of about aging, don't get depressed. You're closer to heaven than you've ever been before, right? We don't know when God's going to take us home, no matter what our age is. Rejoice. Be comforted in knowing that you have eternal life. And then being comforted in knowing we're in his hand. We're in his hand. We're in the hand of Jesus. We're in the hand of his father, of our father. So, so many things in our lives are outside of our hands. Have you come to realize that? There's very, very, very little that is actually in our control. But we're in his hands. We're in the hands of Jesus. We're in the hands of the Father. And then also we're comforted in knowing the power of the name of Jesus. When we speak of the power of the name of Jesus, we're talking about the character and the nature of Jesus, who Jesus is. There's power in who Jesus is. And as we go through this life speaking about who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's going to do, there's power in that. That's the ministry of John the Baptist. In Romans 15, verse 13, this is what I want to leave you with this morning. It says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you stand with me and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for eternal life. We thank you for heaven as believers. And so many times I get distracted and consumed with all of the challenges of this life. And we look forward to eternal life. And we do pray for those that don't know you, that they would be saved, that they would see their need for you. We thank you that we're in your hand, even though when we don't feel it or we don't perceive it, that you're holding us and are going to finish the good work that you've started in our lives. We also thank you for the power in your name, Jesus, who you are, what you've done, your character, your grace, your mercy, your faithfulness, your truth. And we do ask in Jesus' name that you being the God of hope would fill us with joy and peace through believing. We trust you. Put your trust afresh in the Lord in your present situations. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, Father, would you pour your spirit afresh into our hearts that we could abound in hope be overflowing in hope. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.